Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Hello and welcome listeners. Perhaps you are listening in the car or in a comfy chair or while going for a walk. But wherever you are and whatever you are doing, settle in because we've got a fair bit to get through. My, my, what a year 2021 has been. It's been one of upheaval around the world, including everything from grappling with extended lockdowns and being apart from family, to the stress of learning about new variants, to the relief of getting vaccinated. As the year ends and a new one begins, we are still trying to understand what the world will look like as we find a new rhythm of living with COVID in our lives. For me, a lot of this year was spent in London. I went over in March to start my new role with the Wellcome Trust, a global charitable foundation that uses science to solve the world's greatest health challenges with a particular focus on infectious disease. As you can imagine, the research Welcome Funds has never felt more important. I am pleased Welcome is also investing heavily in mental health research, which is critically needed. This year, the need for mental health support services has skyrocketed. A big shout out to the wonderful staff of Beyond Blue, who have been incredible in meeting record demand. Being in London also gave me the opportunity to work in person on replenishing the funds of the Global Partnership for Education. And I am proud we raised over $4 billion to support the education of the world's poorest children. In addition, I was able to see my colleagues at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, which is the home of this podcast. In this, our third season of a podcast of one's own, we strive to bring you a real diversity of guests and stories and stretch what we already know and understand about barriers to leadership. We love reading listener feedback and it makes us smile to know how many of you really appreciate what we make. In a big surprise, our team also managed to win an Australian Podcast Award this year, which wouldn't have been possible without all of you who listen and enjoy what we do. So thank you so much. As you know, our guests have included Nobel Prize winners, authors, former Prime Ministers, professors, and of course, many more. However, what I really noticed through these conversations, no matter the guest, was one consistent theme, that gender inequality, which was a persistent feature in our society before COVID, has been exacerbated by the pandemic. The thing is, we know that women were more likely to lose jobs and get less government support. At the peak of the crisis, women in Australia lost jobs at double the rate of men, almost 8% compared with 4%. We also saw the disadvantage women already face becoming more entrenched. 
with women shouldering the increase in unpaid work, supervising children learning from home and taking on an extra hour a day of household duties. This, to my mind, means our research at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, where we are working towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership, has never felt more pertinent. Our sister institute, Jewel Asia Pacific, at the Australian National University in Canberra, is really getting off the ground, and Professor Michelle Ryan has just joined as the director of the institute. She came on the podcast to talk about many things, including the glass cliff phenomenon, which we will come back to a bit later. But here is Michelle explaining what she thinks the impact of COVID will be on gender equality. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think when you get massive social upheaval, it is a potential for change. So so once you start to do things differently, you know, because you've been forced to, that, that can mean change. Whether that's good or bad change, I'm not sure. So we've certainly seen some regression um, in terms of gender equality in countries where there have been stronger lockdowns, where there's been homeschooling, where there's been layoffs and things like that. We know that women have been affected much more. So women have been more likely to lose their jobs because they've been precarious or not covered through government sort of initiatives to to keep jobs or to keep paying people. We know that women have been taking on much more of the childcare and the domestic sphere, especially with homeschooling. And so in, in that way, we can see a shift back. In other ways, I think there's potentially a shift forwards and maybe we're just starting to move into that. We're starting to think of the workplace as different. Many people haven't been into the office in 18 months. What the ideal worker looks like now, I think, is changing. It's not necessarily someone who's sitting at their desk from nine to five. We know that we can work flexibly. We know we can work from home. We know that Zoom works, you know, so it might open a whole range of sort of flexibilities, which might advantage women or it might allow women to come forward, but it might not. Um, It also potentially threatens work-life balance. It might open up some options for flexibility. But I think also if we expect people to be available all the time now, that's a different type of issue for women. So for all sorts of workers, but likely to affect women more as well. The misinformation surrounding COVID-19 has also been a real concern, particularly when it comes to the discussion of vaccines and their safety. However, fake news didn't just start with COVID. I'm really fascinated to understand more about why people are influenced in the way they are by misinformation. So I asked Professor Patricia Kingori to join me and talk about her research into fakes, fabrications and falsehoods. Here is Patricia explaining who is more susceptible to fake news. What we know is, and there's been some really fantastic research on this, I'm thinking about Heidi Larson's group at the London School of Hygiene in particular, that women, older people and minority groups are more likely to be the target of this misinformation and false information in the same way that the algorithms and trolls that mean that women politicians are more likely to receive really unpleasant messages and they're targeted by that. That's not an accident. Those algorithms exist that target women and that's been proven. Women, older people and minority communities are more likely to receive misinformation and false information. And if we go back to the baby formula example that I gave, 
that's often because these are groups who are more likely to try and seek out information or they don't feel that the information that's available is there for them. So if we take the example of the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, I think it's just been over a month since there's been an official government statement that it's safe for pregnant women to be vaccinated. This has been over a year since we were told that the vaccine was going to be available, just over six months since the official rollout of the vaccine has begun. So in that time, there's been no targeted, no official statement to alleviate the concerns of half the population around what that vaccine is going to do to them, their bodies, their unborn child. So what we've had is millions of women in droves, thousands going online to try and find out information precisely about this. Now, what does this vaccine mean for me? And those women are susceptible to precisely what we were saying. They go online innocently looking for something, and then before you know it, they've got all this information that's either confusing or, or putting them off and giving them real concerns about the vaccine. Because the people who are addressing those concerns are often the first people to be giving them misinformation. They have a particular agenda. And so this is really asking us questions. And when we think about fakes, it's really asking us, why is it taking so long? Why to really think about half of the population, what that population needs. You know, women should not be something that's an afterthought. The bodies of women should be something that the rollout of vaccines are considered from the very beginning, that not something that is considered afterwards. And that that vacuum of information is filled and often it's sometimes filled with rubbish, you know, and things that are really concerning. And I've seen some of these messages and they're really concerning. At the very least, they'll kind of put women off or delay women being vaccinated. At the worst, they stop women altogether from being vaccinated for something which the government has deemed safe. So, you know, what we have is an absence of information that's filled with something. You know, people don't just wait until governments are ready to give them information about stuff. They go online and they find out about it. You know, when we think about the groups who are more susceptible to receiving false information. These are often the people who are underserved. Then the knowledge isn't produced specifically for them. And they're kind of blind spots as to who should be receiving information. In a year where discussions about vaccines dominated international headlines almost daily, I really was excited to speak to Sarah Gilbert, co-creator of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Sarah was able to give a real insight into what working around the clock, developing a life-saving vaccine was like for her and how she's transitioned from a low-profile scientific researcher to being catapulted into the global media. Sarah's interview stood out from other guests in that she really didn't feel she had experienced many of the gender barriers others felt were so prevalent in their careers she made the point that she is tired of the label female scientists and said she really hasn't faced any misogyny in her career. What a delightful answer. She did really surprise me when I asked her what she would change overnight for women. Here is Sarah making her pitch. I would like to remove the Kay Davis effect. Oh, which I will need to explain to you. So Kay Davis is a very successful professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Oxford. She's a little bit older than I am. And she found that when 
the university decided it was necessary to have better representation of women on committees and selection panels, which is, of course, a very good thing. She was continually being asked to join many different committees and selection panels because she was the only person that anybody could think of who was female to fulfill this role. And that actually had a really negative impact on her ability to do her own research because so much of her time was being requested to do other things. Clearly, it's really important that we do have equal female representation in various different bodies, but it's not good enough to say, oh, well, there's only one woman we can think of in this organisation to join all of these committees. So if that is the situation, the answer, I think, is to start appointing much more junior female members to those committees to quickly get the gender balance more even, and also to provide some training and some experience to those more junior women who will then be better placed to take on the roles as they advance through their career. While of course COVID was a major source of global debate, another topic that was front and centre for much of this year was the gendered violence against women and girls. We saw devastating events like the death of Sarah Everard in London, who was kidnapped and murdered walking home from a friend's house by a serving police officer. Cressida Dick, the head of the Metropolitan Police in London and the first woman to hold that position, joined me on the podcast to talk about the delicate balance of policing London through the pandemic while protesters wanted to reclaim the streets to stop violence against women. In this next clip, we talk about how Cressida felt about the criticism of police shutting down those protests. Well, I think, you know, at any time, violence against women is an extraordinarily important subject and something that is you know, highly emotive and has been, you know, throughout my lifetime. There's still too much of it. It may have changed in its nature. You are more at risk, as you would know, in your own home than you are on the street. We've got that kind of online threats and you know when we look at our our sexual assaults they're far more likely to come from somebody that somebody knows than than a stranger hugely more and perhaps i can't prove this but i i think that probably our streets are safer than they were when i was young but violence against women and girls still exists and is pernicious and it's not unique to london and it's not unique to the 21st century and it's something we should all be angry about the week that you describe during a pandemic where people are, are, you know, quite frustrated and, you know, having to stay inside, as you said at the, at the beginning of the programme, not able to gather on the streets. That was explicitly not allowed in the law. When you have this terrible set of circumstances that we've just talked about. During International Women's Week, we had a wonderful International Women's Day here in the Met on the Monday. And by the end of the week, we're seeing, as you say, a vigil that turned into a protest uh, rally and very, very high emotions to add to the, to the mix at the same time as a new bill was about to be laid in our parliament about policing and, and about policing of protests. So a unique set of circumstances, very high emotion. People may have seen the images of my officers once that peaceful vigil turned into a very large and highly aggressive in parts gathering, which people refused to desist, refused to leave, refused to, to stop gathering, which of course was then, the guidelines have changed, the law has changed, but was then completely not within the law. 
you've seen some images of people, a small number of people being arrested when they refused to leave and or to give their names and addresses and leave. All, with two exceptions, they arrested within within minutes, actually, or you know, and no injuries as far as I'm aware. And subsequently, a report by the highly independent inspector of conservatory saying that actually the Met, in effect, got it pretty much right, proportionate, sensitive, very restrained in the, in the face of high levels of abuse, rational, well-led, well-commanded by the guys on the, on the day. But <laughs> tremendously challenging headlines and judgments, social media and media, uh, for that 24 hours, which undoubtedly may have affected some people's confidence in their police service. The guys and girls who policed that protest did it very professionally. They were in an invidious position. And policing during the pandemic in, you know, this city has more protests than any other, I suspect, in the world. I may be wrong. We have a massive experience of policing protests. And on any day in normal London, you'll have several and sometimes some big ones. And we kind of pride ourselves in our abilities to work, you know, within the law to balance people's rights both to gather to assemble to, to to speak out freedom of speech and at the same time for them not to interfere too much with other people's rights to get on with their business lay on the extra complexity of the uh, coronavirus regulations explicitly not allowing gatherings and you had a very very difficult mixture in australia we saw people turn out in their thousands for the women's marches around the country this movement has responded to the trailblazing spirit of Brittany Higgins, who has joined Jewel at ANU, Grace Tame and Chanel Contos, these young women who not only talk so openly about their own experiences, but take constructive action in response to life-changing events and challenges. I have been both awestruck and inspired, a feeling I know is shared by many, including my good friend, and former colleague, Jenny Macklin. Oh, well, there are two young women that have had a lot of impact on me this year. One was Brittany Higgins uh, and the way she has spoken out. And what that's meant to me is really thinking a lot about all of the staff that you and I have had over the many years that we were in the parliament and thinking about um, their experiences and knowing that uh, it often was very, very difficult for them the second person I really uh, was very shaken up by, actually, was Grace Tame, who is uh, Australian of the Year, a young woman who also has suffered uh, the most horrific abuse. And one of the things that she said when she received her Australian of the Year award was that you must speak out, don't stay silent. And that really reverberated with me. Because as you have often said, and I've said as well, we've said together, that we did tend to stay quiet. We tried to laugh it off. Australians don't like um, moaners or whingers. We're supposed to just take a joke. And I know that uh, you did that. I know that I did that on the many occasions uh, when Looking back now, well, I would certainly say uh, I should have spoken out and I didn't. 
I was very motivated by Grace Tame. I, I think uh, she is absolutely right that until we all speak out, then the sort of abuse that uh, she and Brittany Higgins and so many other women experience every single day, that it's just going to continue. While speaking out and making change needs to be celebrated, I think we should acknowledge that sometimes it's not the right moment. I know that the discussion around women who have spoken out about their challenges can often leave those who can't or didn't feeling as though perhaps they are inadequate in some way. But I think it's important to acknowledge that not everyone feels that they have the strength to speak out or the endurance to withstand the possible public attention for doing so. And it's tempting to want to gloss over these moments and just focus on the public voices. But there is also something to be learned from those who feel it's just not their time. Someone who spoke to me about this struggle is the extremely talented and critically acclaimed Australian author and Indigenous woman, Tara June Winch. A few years ago, an Australian commentator pursued a very ugly line of questioning about the background of prominent Indigenous figures, including Tara. He claimed that those with lighter skin couldn't truly claim to face real racism. In this next clip, Tara honestly explains the impact that had on her. I think it broke me. You know, it didn't anger me enough to fight back. It just actually broke me. Because, of course, I, you know, Swallow the Airs about a young Aboriginal girl who grows up off country who some people see as Aboriginal and some people see as white. It's, and I, every day I wake up with white privilege because of the, my fair skin. I understood that. I explored that in the entire novel. But it didn't mean that I wasn't an Indigenous person, that I didn't come from a proud Indigenous family. It broke me, Julia, who was in New York trying to become a great writer there, a great writer, and had this great opportunity. You know, I'd won this international prize and was really working on my craft there. And I just thought, oh, my country hates me. My country doesn't want to hear from me. What's the point? And I felt, what have I done wrong? I've just lived my truth and it doesn't fit neatly into your idea of, and I say your because it was a, there was a larger response of racism around that. Was the, it gained support in the Australian media and in the public perception of race. I just thought, what right do you have to dictate who I am? Why should that offend you that I'm trying to explore these details, the significance of, of growing up in colonised Australia? You know, what is so offensive about me? And it was obvious that they hadn't read my book, they hadn't dug their heels as a journalist and gone and seen my father or my aunties who had been in children's homes, you know. It just, yeah, broke me, Julia. I didn't gain anything for me any fire actually in terms of my voice and speaking up for myself I actually and I know that we should as women in those situations where someone's challenging us and and putting us down that we're supposed to stick up for myself but I couldn't I don't know I think I was 24 and just still a single mum in a foreign country and I just didn't have it in me so I pulled out of the 
racial discrimination court case that led to the change in the Racial Discrimination Act. I pulled out of that. I was the only person to pull out of that claimant to pull out of that. But because I felt that I felt I was too, I had no strength at that point to go through with it. I couldn't bear it. I just wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to focus on that person. I wanted to focus on what I was always trying to say. So I just kept working. I wish I was stronger. I wish I'd had more agency. But I was only just sort of, I was still trying to prove myself just as a as a writer and, and especially as a mother. So I didn't feel, I just didn't feel strong enough, Julia. For many women who tried to tell their stories in the past, there often hasn't been a receptive audience to understand their concerns or report their point of view. Someone who knows a lot about this is well-known Australian journalist and broadcaster Annabelle Crabb. Annabelle's project, Ms Represented, a documentary on the 100 years since women were elected to Australian Parliament, enriched the conversation about the nature of Australian Parliament House and the kind of workplace it is for women. Annabelle reflected with me on how she thinks the culture of media reporting has changed because we have more women in the Canberra Press Gallery. The arrival and flourishing of powerful women in the press gallery has changed the rules about what is news and what isn't news. Because I tell you what, the story about Brittany Higgins, I can absolutely envision a time where she might have told a journalist that story and been told that's not really a yarn. Because, I mean, I was certainly brought up in a culture of ensuring that you did not unnecessarily report on the private lives of politicians and staffers and so on. And I still respect that about Australian politics. Like I think we do not delve into the private lives of public figures unless there is a conflict. And I've always thought that that is a good and right thing to do. But also in the last year or two, the question arises, well, who does that rule protect? And often historically that has protected powerful dudes who get up to this and that and so on. But I do think that The existence of senior women making calls in the gallery are what drove that story and certainly Samantha Maiden breaking that story and pursuing it and being backed in by senior women journalists I think has made a real difference and I think there is now a differing understanding of the culture of Parliament House and the things that it has sort of allowed to occur that now in hindsight seem old-fashioned at the most benign and actively dreadful at worst. Goodness, I still find it remarkable to think about the story of Brittany Higgins never being reported because journalists wouldn't have deemed it news. What this really underscores is the critical importance of having a more equitable and diverse balance of people in leadership positions. Speaking of equity, we thought perhaps it was time to do something about the gender balance of our podcast and have on our first male guest. Tomas Chamaro Premusic is an organisational psychologist and has written a very clever book titled Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Tomas didn't set out to write a book about gender he set out to write about leadership more generally and just happened to wind up talking about incompetent men. Here is Thomas explaining how his book evolved. Firstly, I was always interested in leadership competence and that was before writing the book. And when you do a lot of research, 
in this area, you realize that actually, contrary to what you would expect, leadership competence in any area is the exception rather than the norm. You know, the majority of leaders in any organizations are not famous for either running or managing high-performing teams, for having high levels of trust and morale in their followers and subordinates. You only need to go to Google and type in my boss is, my manager is, to see what autocomplete functions you get. This, by the way, you can do in any country, in any language, and it's always very negative. So that got me interested in leadership incompetence. And then through my research, I found, you know, this pathological mismatch. The fact that the very factors that tend to seduce us in leaders are often those attributes that are responsible for their downfall. And the main one that I really focused on for many years is confidence. We love to select people, leaders for their confidence, which, by the way, usually means overconfidence, because if it sticks out and there is a surplus, it means they're not as good as they think. And actually, that leads to reckless risk-taking and very self-serving decisions and being delusional, etc. And it usually ends up, as, as we all know today. So that was just really an analysis of leadership incompetence. When I started paying attention to the gender literature, and it was actually when Sheryl Sandberg published her book, Lean In, that my editor at Harvard Business Review said, if I understand your research correctly, this is kind of like the opposite of what you're saying. She's saying, women, the solution to being a leader and getting to the top is be more confident, put yourself forward, and basically BS your way up, right? And so she invited me to write something to address this. And I said, look, in my view, we should not be pointing the finger at women for, in essence, not behaving like overconfident men. Right. You know, and then and then that article did very well. But, you know, the title was her idea, which is the same title of the book. You know, why do so many competent men become leaders? So I say behind every incompetent man, there is usually a competent woman. This was Sarah Green, my editor. And it was quite out there for HBR to the point that it took them six or seven years to transform that article into a book. I proposed it many times. I said, you know, it kept on going to number one. Every time an incompetent man became, became a leader, the article skyrocketed to most popular. So I was like, can I do a book on it? And the response was always, we can't do this. 70% of our readers are men. To which I kept saying, don't worry, because one of the characteristics of incompetence is you don't realize that it's you, that you are incompetent. <laughs> it's lack of self-awareness. So as a matter of fact, that ended up happening. You know, a lot of men bought the book and said, I know people who are like this, so this is great. And then the rest is history, and that, and that led to the book. But yeah, I was interested in leadership talent, then leadership incompetence, and then this kind of gender differences that is systematically found in confidence, but not in competence. I love that mental image that there would be all these incompetent men reading that article or reading your book going, oof, doesn't apply to me. <laughs> Exactly. Fantastic. That story still makes me laugh. If you are hearing it for the first time and are now desperate to know about all the reasons incompetent men become leaders, I highly recommend going back to listen to the whole episode with Tomas. When we look at the question of diversity in workplaces and what women can bring to the boardroom, there is a common gender stereotype deployed, which has now made its way into prominent feminist discourse. And it is that men and women see things so differently, and that's why women can bring such a different perspective to the boardroom. But I've wondered if male and female brains are really all that different, 
or if perhaps there is something else going on that means diversity is better for business? To help answer this question, here's academic psychologist and author Cordelia Fine. There are average sex differences in various kinds of characteristics. When it comes to things that are most relevant to the workplace, these tend to be pretty modest. So the largest ones are things to do with physical aggression and frequency of masturbation and how far you can throw things. Usually in most workplaces, not a key performance indicator, hopefully. So the kinds of things that kind of matter in the workplace tend to be fairly modest, but there are average differences. I think the point, it comes back to the point that I made before about the brains, is that even though these, there are these differences, it doesn't mean that we can make kind of useful generalizations about what women are like and what men are like. And it doesn't mean that we can make, you know, useful predictions about what any particular man will be like and what any particular woman will be like. Does that mean that it doesn't matter if we have all male boards? Well, no. And I think that's for a few reasons. So one is you know, it's very, it's easy to get very focused on the individual and think, you know, well, let's add a woman, we'll add a bit of pink magic to our board and not think about the way that the gender dynamics can change depending on the balance that you have in that board. There's some, been some fascinating research done in political decision making that shows that as you change the ratio of men and women in that group decision making context and you change the decision rules, so whether it's kind of consensus or majority rules, the dynamics change within that discussion. And they don't just change because you have more women or fewer women. They change because when you have more women, for example, the men start to behave in a different kind of way. So the kind of the norms of the conversation and the values actually shift. So when you have more women, it's not that simply that you're adding more femininity, you're actually changing the way that everyone is behaving. I was so interested to hear one of your former guests, actually, Kate Blanchett. She she mentioned exactly this phenomenon when she was talking about the film industry and the way that actually she actually talked about the men in, in the room sort of contributing in a different kind of way because there was a different gender balance, which I thought was a really interesting observation. So I think that's one thing that we have to take into account. And then secondly, this idea that when you have more women, particularly in senior positions, that that will have kind of positive trickle-down effects on the rest of the organisation. Now, this is kind of a controversial idea. So there'll be some people to say, no, it's just when you have women at the top, it's just equal opportunity oppression. They just become cogs in the wheel. They just assimilate and they don't help the people below. And there are other people to say, no, 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 women, women can be agents of change. They can have a, a beneficial effect for you know, the gender pay gap for to act as a role model for other women and so on. And I think, you know, there's something I'm still looking at. And I think the research does point to a somewhat more optimistic view, at least in a probabilistic sense. It's not the, it's not the case that, you know, any woman that you shoot up to the top is going to spread rose petals for all women who, who come behind her, but just probabilistically, it is likely to make a difference. And I know the report that the, the Global Institute of Women's Leadership put out looking at the effect of women in political leadership did find this, that there was a positive effect of having women politicians on the kinds of policies uh, and legislation that, that they supported and, and pushed through. While we know diversity is a good thing in decision-making, so many women still encounter barriers on their way to the top. You've probably heard of the glass ceiling, which is the barrier you might proverbially smash your head on when you try to break through into those highest 
hardest to reach places, like Hillary Clinton running for president. But another phenomenon which we are beginning to understand and see more of is the glass cliff, which was uncovered by Global Institute for Women's Leadership ANU Director Michelle Ryan. Here she is again, explaining her research in her own words. Yeah, so our research on the glass cliff really looks at what happens to those women who do start to break through the glass ceiling, that do take on leadership positions. And one of the questions that we we really had was, what sort of positions do they tend to take on? Our research, which has been conducted in politics, but also in the business sphere, there's been work in the sporting arena, in education, all sorts of different areas, suggests that women are much more likely to take on leadership positions in these times of crisis when things are difficult. So within an organisation, it might be when share prices have dropped low. In politics, it might be after a scandal. In the sporting arena, it might be, you know, after a big streak of losses. So this idea then is, that while women have broken through the glass ceiling, they're on this glass cliff. So the idea is that they're high up, they've got a senior leadership position, but because they're leading in times of crisis, that position is relatively risky and relatively precarious. So they're perched up high with, you know, the chance of falling off. And we see this as, I guess, another form of of relatively subtle discrimination. It's harder to lead in times of crisis. It's difficult to be seen as a renowned leader when everything is falling down around you, even if those things were set in train long before you took your role. And in terms of what creates the glass cliff, is it because organisations, political parties, sporting clubs in crisis say to themselves, man, we've got to do something different than we've ever done before. I know we'll get a very different type of leader, we'll get a woman. Or is it that those jobs get advertised and people with choices, you know, tending to be men who perhaps can pick or choose from a variety of jobs say, there's no way that I'm going to go for that one because it's a poison chalice, whereas a woman will step forward because it could be her only opportunity to lead. Which of those do you think it is? I mean, I think with psychology, there's never one easy answer. So actually, I think it's both of those things as well as other things. So I think there's definitely a case of men saying, actually, I won't take that. I'll step back. And and for women, they might not feel that they'll have another option that comes on. So they might feel that they might need to take it. I think it is also the case that it could be about trying something different. There's some nice research in Japan that looks at what happens in times of crisis, and they don't have very many female leaders in Japan. But when an organisation is in crisis, they tend to appoint someone from outside Japan, so often a Westerner. Um, So it is this idea that we'll try something different. I think if I was to be also a little bit less charitable... I think there is a little bit of setting women up to fail. So not just that men step back and say, no, I don't want it, but actually they say, why don't you take this one? You know, so so there's not just, a, you know, an absence of men, but but definitely pushing women forward. And, and then you get to say things like, well, you wanted to lead. Here's your opportunity. Go on. So what happens when we see real progress and multiple women start to break through to the top jobs? One of my guests this year who knows a bit about this is Helen Clark. She was the second female Prime Minister of New Zealand after Jenny Shipley. New Zealand has had three female Prime Ministers, with Jacinda Ardern in the top job now. 
Both Ardern and Helen Clark agree that it's certainly easier to lead when there has been a woman to come before you. But another really fascinating insight Helen was able to provide was what happens to the gendered and misogynistic treatment and insults women are often subjected to when there are two women running against each other for the top job of Prime Minister. At the end of 1997, the National Party, seeing Labor coming up in the polls and getting worried, decided to dump their male leader and they brought in Jenny Shipley as Prime Minister. And suddenly it was normal, right? (laughs) It was a woman Prime Minister, not elected, but a woman Prime Minister and a woman leader of the opposition. So whoever won the election, you were going to have a woman as Prime Minister. It normalised it. I should say I'm very grateful to Jenny Shipley for pushing her predecessor aside because it actually made it a lot easier. And actually, she would probably never have been considered for the job if I hadn't been there as the female leader of the opposition who had to be headed off. So that, that was a lucky break. And in a sense then, the gender stereotypes fell away for a while because what were they going to do? So neither of us were suitable for public office, which would have been ridiculous. This discussion with Helen Clark reminded me of the words of author Kate Moss, who, yes, people often get confused with the supermodel. Motivated by seeing an all-male Booker Prize list, Kate started the Women's Prize for Fiction. In this next clip, Kate explains why she started the Women Only Prize, but also explains what she observed when people are just considering female candidates and gender is no longer a factor. For me, it was very straightforward that we, we thought this was the right thing to do. And I believe that completely. Do I think in you know, that day and age, the early 90s, it should be necessary to have a prize for women to honour and celebrate, amplify women's voices because they're being ignored by the real prizes? Obviously not. It's pathetic. But if that is the situation, then what are you going to do about it? And so although there were there were sensible objections, which I respected from older women who had spent a lot of their life campaigning for women to be admitted into male spaces. So for many of those in the first instance, they felt it was a retrograde step, taking women out again of the major spaces. Others just daft, just not paying attention to the figures. And at that stage, when I was doing the research, 60% of novels were authored by women, and some 75% of novels were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. And consequently, what you can see there is that there wasn't a problem with access to market. What there was a problem with was the honouring and respecting of women's work, that women's writing is women's writing. And this, which is done by people with beards, is literature. So that was really what was at stake. And we thought, well, we've got to do something. And the irony is that by setting up a prize to honour and celebrate women's writing, the one metric that can't be applied to the work is that it's by a woman. And when I was doing all the research in the first instance, you would often see if there was a woman on the bookish list, it would say, and the woman on the list, as if she represented everybody. You know, you will have had this a 100,000 times. Whereas the men were allowed to be artists in themselves, and the women were a category. And so oddly, with the Women's Prize, it meant that they could only be judged as artists because that had been taken away. And it was really quite extraordinary. When when I stood up to announce it in 1995 in London at the ICA, Institute of Contemporary Arts, I gave a really energetic and passionate speech because I believed it. We'd got 
huge amounts of private money coming in from the mobile phone company Orange. I genuinely thought that the entire world would be like a Bruegel painting, that they would throw their hats in the air and everybody would be going, this is amazing, all this money going to writing. And so I delivered this very enthusiastic, naive speech in this context, you know, because it felt joyous to me. And then a hand went up at the back of the room. I didn't know the press then. I, you know, I didn't know any of the journalists and I didn't know that this guy was from the newspaper, the Daily Express, which is not known for its feminism or its desire for equality in any shape or form in those days. And he put his hand up and he said, yes, I said, any, any questions? And he said, yes, are you a lesbian? <laughs> oh, my goodness. We've had all sorts of guests on this season, Nobel Prize winners, former prime ministers, tech experts, and then we had Audette XL. Audette stands out and is really like no one I've come across before. A one-woman powerhouse, she somehow managed to combine the high-flying world of corporate finance with humanitarian work by establishing a corporate finance business which channels all of its profits into funding aid work in developing countries. Her clarity of purpose is something that really impressed me, but also I was a bit perplexed. How does someone with a lifelong passion for human rights activism end up in corporate banking? In this next clip, Audette explains. Absolutely, I was sure that I was going to be a human rights activist. So, and everybody who knew me was, came out of school, went to Victoria University, Wellington, great left-wing activist university, very involved in the anti-apartheid movement, very involved in the anti-tour movement. When the Springboks came to New Zealand, feminist movement, peace movement, spent a lot of time being you know, hauled off the streets by the police with placards. I studied law because I wanted to be an officer of the court. And I profoundly believed that I needed to understand structure if I was going to make social change. But it was all about human rights. Came to Australia to jump in the Australian National Parachuting Championships and broke my knee. And so found myself hobbling into Melbourne University, which for those of you listeners who don't know, is a very blue blood university, quite different to where I'd been. And there, all the university kids, they drove to school in their own cars. I was cleaning office buildings. <laughs> I'd already had three years of that to pay my way through university. So very shocking moment of meeting the other side, if you like. And I had this really big moment weird in a cafe talking to some random guy one of those conversations you have where I said to him why did you study law and he said to me why did I study law because a top QC in Melbourne makes you know whatever it was six thousand dollars a day anyway it was like a lightning bolt hit me and I thought oh my god imagine studying law for that reason for money you know it was just so shocking and then I had a second lightning bolt and I thought oh my God, I don't understand that. I don't understand those people. I don't understand that power structure. I do not understand power and money. And I was cleaning the house of a partner of a major law firm. And that, so that night there I am cleaning this guy's house and he comes home and I said to him, what's the most right-wing law firm in Australia? And he said to me, I beg your pardon. And I said, I mean, what's the most business-friendly law firm? And he gave me that gift that so many men have given all of us. He said to me, oh, it's a firm in uh, Sydney. It's called Allen, Allen and Hemsley, but uh, you would never get in there. 
that's where I went. So when you know, I decided, right, go to the heart, the dark heart of the capitalist empire. So that's where it all began. I decided there was nothing about money and power that interested me except that I didn't understand it. And I thought, I need to understand that if I want to affect change. So I went in like a spy in the enemy camp. And then, of course, you get into those places, you have that experience, and you realize you step out of your tribe. Oh, my God, I've been so prejudiced. I got in there, you know, my feminist activist tribe disowned me as soon as I put on makeup and high heels and told me that I was selling out. But I got in there and realized there's people with brains in here and there's some of them have values. And holy cow, some of this is really interesting. And it forced me to re-examine the thinking that I'd had about standing on one side, kind of the virtuous side, and, and there were the bad guys, you know, the capitalist pig dog bastards on the other side. And it forced me to re-examine that. And so there began a journey, amazing journey of learning. I ended up as the CEO of this publicly traded bank in Bermuda and I actually signed the $5 note in Bermuda. I signed the Queen's Neck and my, my left-wing activist family still have that framed and on the wall of the house as the point of total departure where I began. But, but all the, the point really all the way for me was learning figuring out that if we, I believe, I would think there's a million ways to affect social change and you in particular are a great icon globally of how you've done that. But for me, I realized I can sit in engagement. I can learn this stuff and I can use it to turn the dial. And, you know, I'm a Kiwi girl without money and I've managed to generate with amazing teams standing with me $54 million for the poor and hopefully inspired many others to do similar things or like things. And that's because I'm sitting in the middle trying to figure out how to get these two sides, trying to be heard. So it has been a weird journey, but I do find it really funny that people think I'm a businesswoman who decided to give back because, and all those people who really know me laugh hysterically about that. I'm the furthest thing away from a businesswoman who tried to give back than you've ever met. Someone else who is an expert in combining financial skills with global good is my friend and former colleague, Alice Albright. We worked together for seven years at the Global Partnership for Education, or GPE, where Alice is CEO, and I've just finished my position as chair. Alice and I share a real passion for girls' education and truly believe that if you educate girls, you can unleash future leaders who will change the world. Here is Alice explaining why educating girls is crucial. When you look at the, the things that are holding back progress on education and, frankly, the development agenda as a whole, it is the fact that we are not educating girls because of what, as you've rightly said, the unleashing factor. We are leaving half of the world's talent on the table and off to the side. It's just unconscionable that we're doing that. And it's very clear that there is this unlocking effect. So if you have an educated girl, they will take their children to get immunized. They will put their children in school. They will begin to earn a living. They'll begin to participate in the sort of democratic processes of their community. They may even become a teacher themselves. They may contribute to the work of the school in some way. And you can just see that there's this ripple effect that goes on and on and on relative to girls that are kept at home and not allowed to go out and do anything. So it is the most underused resource in the world in terms of sparking change in many, many ways. The other thing is, is somewhat more personal, which is a question of fairness. I often think about how darn lucky I was to go to, you know, the most prestigious girls' school in Washington, D.C. growing up. 
where I had access to the most prestigious everything, sports, teachers, clubs, you know, you name it. And then I visited, I remember this very distinctly, I visited with some uh, high school girls in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso a couple of years ago at the Nelson Mandela High School. And all they wanted to do was be able to continue to get to their school. And they would ride their bikes 18 and 20 kilometers each way. They were afraid of getting abducted along the way. They had to do jobs on their way home to pay, start paying for things before they got home to help their parents. And then they had to do their homework by candlelight. And all they wanted to do was get back again to the next day. And this visual image of my school in Washington, D.C. and their school in Ouagadougou, it's simply not fair that just based on the zip code that I was born in and the zip code that they were born in, that their opportunity set is so much more limited. And they're just as smart as all the girls I went to school with, if not more. So it just deeply bothers me about the unfairness of it. As this year draws to a close, it would be wrong of me not to acknowledge that another year of digital recording has meant more than a few technical challenges. While we always work hard to bring you the best audio we can, and Nick does a wonderful job behind the scenes editing our episodes, this little clip is a sneaky peek into what you don't hear. Sorry, Julia. um, I think in the process of trying to mute it, you've disallowed microphone access on Zencaster. Ah, because I was Um, doing the wrong thing. Unfortunately. If you click on that little... Um, the thing, yeah. The little thing that you clicked on before and always allow sound on Zencaster, it should resolve itself. Okay, I've done that. Okay. Just Is that fixed your end? For me, it's still saying waiting for microphone access. Um, oh, yeah. So, so, so it should be just below. Yeah. I've So it's got microphone block. The page has been blocked from accessing your microphone. And I've put the dot in always allow. Yep. And then hit, hit done. Hit How's that one? Done. Still saying waiting for microphone access. Do you want to, could you try just refreshing the page? Ah, uh, yep. Yep. I can do see if that. that. There we go. That looks, that looks better. Yep. So it says perfect. recording in progress. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. You can forget about Zencaster now. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Let's do this thing. Beautiful. <laughs> Oh dear, could there be a more 2021 conversation than struggling with a virtual meeting? So there you have it. Our 2021 season is a wrap. We're going to take a bit of a break over the Australian summer, but we will be back next year with lots of compelling conversations and a few guests I think you will be very excited to hear from. Until then, I wish you all a very festive and safe holiday season. You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with King's Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. 
and please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.